This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.37 Friday, the 2nd of December, and you're listening to The Morning Run. Now, this is WTF, or otherwise known as What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits you may have missed. Joining me is Chong Johnson and Philip C. Now, gentlemen, I want to start with international stories that have caught our eye and maybe kind of slipped under the radar, but perhaps now we're giving you a bit of an update. And of course, it's all about China and COVID-19. Now, did you know December 1st is the anniversary of the first COVID infection to be recorded in scientific literature? Of course, that was about, what, three years ago? And since then, we've seen a surge in cases and public anger at its regime because they are still sticking to their zero COVID policy. Now, just last weekend, we did see demonstrations across major Chinese cities, so the likes of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong, and people were just not happy. They were holding up little pieces of blank pieces of paper. Some were even calling for Xi Jinping to step down, which is a real rarity in China. For, for me, it was an eye-opener. I never expected this kind of protest to take place in China. Yep. I think the Chinese government really has softened its tone. I think even for um, people that are infected in Beijing, now you're allowed to quarantine at home instead of being in a centralised facility. And I think at the central government level, the the tone that's coming up from the Vice Premier, San Chun, he said that at a meeting that China faces a new COVID situation as the Omicron variant's pathogenic nature weakens, vaccination becomes more common and there's an accumulation of experience now with COVID prevention and control. So the tone has changed, right, in a matter of mm. days, right? So mm. prior to that, I think uh, especially city councils were very strict or they were implementing a very hardcore line towards COVID-19 infection. So if there was anyone in your block, where it be your apartment, office, or even in a mall, they would just completely shut down. <laughs> Remember, whole IKEA, people were trapped in there. Disneyland, people were also yep. trapped in there. <laughs> so I think that clearly wasn't making people happy, especially if you're a business person. So because of the demonstrations in the last two, three days, a little bit of a change there, I think. I found it very interesting because prior to you know this recent relaxation, I was wondering in my mind, with these um, protests that were coming through, would the Chinese government double down and say, no, we have to you know, clamp be it down, strict. be super strict even further? Or were they going to capitulate and, and relax it a bit? And I think we kind of get a sense of where we're heading towards again. So then the big question is, when is zero COVID going to be officially lifted in China? Because it has huge uh, global repercussions when that takes place, both on the good and bad side. On the negative side, you're going to see energy prices surge. Europe's going to be in a lot of challenge. will suffer, I think, as we enter the winter season, or mm. we're in the midst of winter season. On the plus side, for a country like us, tourism numbers, investments coming back will be also upside. So I think the relaxation of zero COVID is not only going to be a significant impact within China, but it has huge global ramifications. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I think what's key now that's probably happening behind the scenes, and we are getting a sense of this, is a surge in getting, well, basically a surge in vaccination rates. I think especially among the elderly. So the vaccination rates and the booster rates among the elderly were quite low. And partially because people had this false 
whole sense of security that mm. you know for the last three years China was insulated. Death rates in China from COVID nineteen very low, something like thirty thousand compared to the US a million, right? So people felt, oh, I didn't need it. But the reality is that COVID nineteen is present in China, and you can't you can't stamp it out. Yes. Even if you have a very strict testing policy, it's not going to work. So the next step is vaccination. But bear in mind the mnra vaccines there aren't authorized so they're just using the current locally manufactured vaccines but i suppose they offer some level of protection better than none relatively so, eff- efficacy is a bit lower yeah but as you say right covid is still around not only in china but around the world we're also seeing a rise of xbb variant cases taking place in the united states yeah, I think I listened to a podcast where Dr. Anthony Fauci actually yes. cautioned that yes. the XBB variant is um, uh, somewhat worrying. It was his exit interview in yes, the Wall right. Street Journal. Yes, right. I didn't finish very, it yet. But he's very, he's very my good. hero, guys. Yeah, He got very testy with the interviewee yeah, you know, he got quite, uh, on the Wall Street Journal podcast question. because they were pushing him about misinformation and whether he was creating division of information, uh, asymmetry there. And he got very testy and got a bit uh, uncomfortable with the question there. But he's still my hero. I mean, at least he was a he was the measured voice of science. Uh, bear in mind, he was there even when President Trump was in the White House, and he tried his best to dispel all the fake news. Right, and there yeah. was these very cute press conference where you could see his eyeballs rolling when President Trump said something that wasn't scientifically proven. But back to China, you can see that even the state media is changing its tone. So what has happened in the last few days is that they basically said that you know you have to live with COVID. If you catch it, it's not the end end of the world. You know, there is medication available. There are vaccines available. You will not suffer so much. I think this is also to reassure people not to be too overly frightened if you do catch it. And this is something we also did in Malaysia. Yeah, And I read an article recently that Guangzhou, which is the city or district which is hardest hit by COVID, they will very soon allow most restaurants to resume in-store downing and entertainment venues can gradually open. So that's really a big shift. And I think some brokers have really come up to say that Nomura said that with this and all this relaxation, they believe that the zero-code policy will end within the next few months. However, restrictions and lockdowns may not truly moderate before March of next year. Charlene, can we go to Shanghai for our offsite? Oh, the food there is glorious. <laughs> Should we go to Shanghai? I... I have my reservations because I don't want to be in quarantine, I would have to say. Despite the city being very Trying to be quarantined in Disneyland, right? Yeah, in Disneyland. I don't know. We'll have to watch this space. Uh, But guys, another big story that came out was, of course, Sam Bankman-Fried. His TV appearance uh, and, you know, key of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange fame. He made his first appearance on Wednesday since his business in Empire imploded this month and at that TV appearance he said I didn't try to commit fraud yeah he, but he did say he made many many mistakes what was very interesting is in that whole summit there was also Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen who was also a speaker there and, and she, this summit by the way is the New York Times deal book conference which is a big deal literally. big deal exactly right and she called the FTX debacle the Lehman moment within crypto and personally he said he doesn't personally think he has committed criminal liability. He claimed he was unaware of Alameda's exposure. In 2019, he said 40% of FTX volume was from Alameda. But by 2022, he actually believed that the number was down to 2%, which led him to believe that FTX exposure was a lot less. And the liquidity crunch at FTX came after Bankman fried secretly yeah. moved 10 billion US dollars of FTX customer funds to Alameda and 1 billion went missing. 
and he told Reuters after that that he did not secretly transfer, but rather it misread it as a confusing internal labelling. Well, regardless of what all these confusion and mistakes he made, there has been incredible collateral damage that's taken place across all the institutions around the world. But isn't his statement uh, that uh, TV appearance uh, amount to an admission of guilt when he said, yeah. look, I screwed up. Yes. I was CEO. He was saying it's management decision as opposed to, I guess, dodgy, suspect, corrupt behaviour. But ultimately, the buck stops with you, right? Yes. And what about things like the fact that they spent three hundred million on real estate in Bahamas? He he said he was asked, and he said, "Oh, I I needed to spend that kind of money to attract the best talent." Bahamas is gorgeous. <laughs> you, you really, I mean, I don't need an excuse to move there. I don't think I need three hundred million yeah. to. It just just excuses if you ask it's me, excuses. right? It's excuses. And bringing the story closer to home in Singapore, uh, Singapore's DPM Lawrence Wong has said that Tomasic has already suffered reputational damage over FTX losses and they will be conducting an internal review. I think they've written off their $275 million investment given its status as a state-owned entity. Now, DPM Wong for Singapore said that Singapore has no aspirations to become a crypto hub and seeks to be a responsible and innovative digital asset player. Okay, let's stay on Singapore. Guess what? Guess what's new? It's one of the most expensive places in the world. Can you believe that? This is according to the EIU uh, Worldwide Cost of Living Survey that comes out annually. And they um, it shares a space with uh, New York. And yet, they still attract talent. Exactly. So, you know, I think for me... Yes, it's very expensive, but if people uh, are gravitating there because of the quality of work, the quality of life, quality of life, the the quality of work as well, yes, right? Yes, the interesting sure. work that comes through there. Perhaps people will cast a blind eye for these top talents. Well, because you're also earning top dollar, to be earning honest. Top yeah, but Singapore definitely has uh, risen up the ranks, and I think a lot of it due to the fact that Hong Kong. Some of the shine, some of its shine has been mm. lost. Uh, COVID zero policy is not helping. A lot of uh, top uh, management have moved to Singapore. Singapore is also attractive. Has become now the financial hub of Asia. Yeah, I think we were discussing this yesterday, Shaoning, where FT reported that as many as 500 Chinese companies have quietly registered or redomiciled in Singapore over the past 12 months in a bid to hedge against geopolitical risk tensions between China and US. So there's been an acute rush for companies to actually future-proof their yeah. businesses as well. But I wonder whether this crowds out the locals, right? Because when you have it being one of the most expensive cities to live in, are wages also moving up in tandem for the locals? Does this mean that housing becomes extremely expensive. Competition so, for jobs. Competition for jobs, yeah. competition for schools. This is a small island, 5 million people. Not easy, right? It's not an easy part, especially when we talk about the cost of living crisis that's taking place all around the world now. But if you feel poor and you, you know, you're thinking of where you want to come and spend your sink dollar, Malaysia, outdoors are always welcome. Please just take your car, drive over to the causeway. But don't pump out petrol. Yeah. But don't, don't pump out petrol. Only uh, the raw 97. Uh, uh, lots of cheap available properties. Yes. Nice ones, especially near the KLCC park. But don't inflate our prices also uh, when you come over. <laughs> I think there's a <laughs> lot of conditions we really. <laughs> Sorry, just my xenophobic <laughs> element coming out within okay. me. We're heading into some messages. We'll come back and take a look at Malaysian news. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. 9.50, Friday, the 2nd of December. And thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. Now, we have to turn our attention inwards towards Malaysia and the word of the day is cabinet. Yeah, and I don't think you mean Billy Bookcase, right? No, or oh, Amari, none of those, no. none of those. <laughs> I think you're referring to the Jamal Mantri. Yes. Essentially, the 
the team that will be steering Malaysia through uh, these very uncertain, uncharted times. As we saw just now, we heard that uh, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim was meeting, uh, was at Istana Negara. He's exited Istana Negara to uh, perhaps discuss with the Agong on the names of the cabinet ministers. Allegedly, he, we don't know. Allegedly, that he's going to be, he's going to tough, tough one to compile that team, team Malaysia to to represent Malaysia in the cabinet because he's already made a commitment to reduce the size of the cabinet. At the same time, he's expanded his coalition. So with half the salary. With half the salary. And by so the way, he's not taking a salary himself. He's not taking a salary. So I'm wondering how is he going to manage that delicate balancing act? Yeah, I can't help but probably draw parallels with uh, Indonesia when Jokowi's first term in office, when he was appointed a, a, a new president at that point in time, he had a 34-member cabinet, of which 18 were seen as technocrats. In his second term in 2019, he announced professionals which included Gojet CEO, and he called it an onward Indonesian cabinet focusing on human development, job creation, boosting opportunities for SMEs. And in in his speech, he actually sounded a warning to his new ministers. First, do not get involved in corruption. Instead, create a system that prevents any opportunity for corruption. Work fast, hard, productively. And he reminded his 34 cabinet that an underperforming member can be replaced at any time during his five years in office. So what's the point of a smaller cabinet? I mean, 34 is a big number-ish. We had 35 prior to that. Well, Indonesia is a much larger place, yes, right? Yes. I mean, you've got how many thousands of islands? Uh, what's the population size? Something like 200 million? Fifth largest country in the world. 300 million, close to that. We are, we are one-tenth of that. 33 million people, small country. Do we really need something like 31 ministers and 34 deputy ministers? Yeah, I, I understand that. I guess the, the question in my mind is, does it make a big dent in terms of our financial yeah, I mean, it's the messaging it's you're the sending messaging out. It's the messaging that's more you important. You want Malaysia, yeah. Malaysia to move up the value chain. You're telling people we should earn more money provided we are more productive in our jobs. Mm. Shouldn't the ministries also walk the same talk? I think that's a fair point if the whole intention is that they're going to right-size and streamline government here and and deliver a more efficient government. I just hope that it's not streamlined to the point that it it it's stops decision-making. Or it's just a PR exercise. It's PR exercise or you take on a too heavy portfolio when actually it does deserve two, three ministers to look at it. So for me, it's a case-by-case situation. Mm. In view that we have such a we have so many issues taking place in this country, do you perhaps need different leadership to tackle all these disparate different issues? I think this task of putting this cabinet together, aside from what you just said, you know, Philip, uh, there's a lot of justification there. But just getting the numbers on Mm. the paper is going to be a challenge, right? You've got 19 political parties in this coalition of the willing. Uh, How are you going to fit everybody on this piece of paper and make everyone happy whilst maintaining your pledges of a corrupt-free government? Uh, because some of the names that have been bandied around are exactly facing corruption charges. One of which is, of course, Amno President, Dato Sri Zahid Hamidi. Yeah, and the fallout will be, if they don't get the cabinet position, are they going to be given other positions to placate later? Or if you're not given, will these parties then decide they're not going to be part of the coalition and pull out before Mm. then? Yeah, I think more more importantly, we had a speaker this week. We also mentioned that we need the right caliber of of ministers as well. We need the right experience, the right uh, credentials for the job. So we, it has to be a right match and not just parachuting in uh, people who are not fit for for that role. Okay, and that speaker was Dr. Rice Hussein, Chief Executive Officer at MA Research. You can catch his podcast. It's called A Cabinet Fit for the Task Ahead. And the keyword he used was integrity. Right, we need characters 
of integrity. Do you think they will bring technocrats into this cabinet? It's very unlikely now, right, if he has to placate everybody. That's the big challenge. When you have too many decision criteria to meet, you then have to kind of compromise on some of the other criteria, perhaps competence and such. That's one Do of the you biggest... need to compromise? Should you have to make well, these compromises? I suspect when you add too many criteria or these rules or mm. principles to co- assemble it, don't you need to then have to give in and taken because you would generally want to optimize for just one thing right merit or competence but if you're optimizing for multiple things it, it will compromise in some form well whatever it is I think those names everybody will be watching it very closely and I think all the different news portals have come out with their own reports as to when the cabinet will be announced some say as soon as tomorrow some people say by Sunday nonetheless at BFM we will, we will be covering that news uh, if not today it will be covered on Monday we'll do an analysis on the cabinet lineup especially for some some of the key ministries I will want to really important ones for me health education and finance uh, but the other thing that is happening on the political scene is that parliament will meet will sit on December 19 and interestingly first thing they will do is elect a new day one Rakyat speaker hmm Current speaker, Tansri Azahar Azizan Harun is the current one will he still keep his job? I was wondering whether it's an election or re-election We'll find out. Wasn't he on the grill with you, Shani? Not with me, with uh, Shazana Oh, Shazana. Mokta, right, yeah. Right. So let's see. Um, will it be followed by other changes? For example, at AG, will two brothers be losing their jobs? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Well, there's a packed agenda on the 19th of December. Not only do we decide on the election of the Speaker, I think there's also a motion of confidence for the Prime Minister. That's eighth on the agenda, followed by multiple government bills. For sure. Now, I think we should end on the business story that just came out yesterday evening. It's even reported in the Star. And it's basically the SC uh, reassuring cryptocurrency investors in Malaysia who are trading in the registered exchanges in the country. Okay, so there are only four here. Luno, MX Global, Synergy and Tokenize. Now, if you are trading in cryptocurrencies via these four companies, you are fine. Because I think there's a lot of concern like, oh, is, is my asset safe? Is it not safe? I think so the SE is trying to reassure the investment mm. community. Yeah, I think uh, I've read an article recently and Mark Mobius, formerly from Templeton, he's given his prediction on Bitcoin. Apparently, he called the drop to 20,000 this year. So his prediction for next year is he's expecting a 40% drop to wow. 10,000 US dollars. Ouch. Okay, but we're no experts here, so caveat emptor. Uh, but that's all we have on the morning run and on WTF2. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. news bulletin and then it's over to Enterprise. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.